Hello, everyone, and welcome to Bible Quest, the Tuesday edition. We're glad you're able to join us today on this Tuesday afternoon. Uh, and if you're coming in on the Zoom app, you already know this, but I just want to repeat it for any newbies. Open up the Q&A box or the chat window and text in any comments and questions you have during the program as we're doing the program live and we'll respond to them. And if you're coming in on Scott's Facebook page, be sure to use the comment box there. We'll be monitoring that as well. Uh, so let's go ahead and get started with the program today. Uh, Stephen, good to see you. How you be? I'm doing well, Drew. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. And our program director, Scott. Uh, Scott, I'm looking for Scott. <laughs> somewhere oh there he is hi scott sorry that's all right you get lost in that little tunnel there we just can't seem to get out sometimes good to see you how you be i'm doing all right how are you good good so we're going to be talking um answering one of the a question from a viewer um that uh, stephen why don't you go ahead and uh read the question and scott um go where we're going with it all right, so uh, the question comes in from Holly. Uh, says, have you all covered the don't tell anyone statements that Jesus made and why he made them? In particular, he raises the young man of Nain in front of the multitudes following him and the city of Nain. Then shortly after raises Jairus's daughter and says, don't tell anyone, why? That's a good question. <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty common question that, that comes up when you're reading the gospels is Jesus is doing these incredible miracles and then telling people, don't tell anybody that this happened. And we think Holly's kind of pointing out the contrast between the miracle at Nain, because where did that take place? Right there, they're coming out of the city. It's a large group of mourners. Everybody sees it. So he's not trying to do that in, in secret. But then in contrast, you've got the other one, where as in a number of times in the Gospel of Mark, it'll say, don't say anything, don't tell anyone, that type of thing. Uh, and so we'll, we'll take a look at uh, some scriptures and some principles. Um, and the first two things we'll note that are just similar uh, are from Mark 1 and from Mark 3. Uh, I want you to imagine for a moment that today you had the ability to cure anyone's cancer, to cure anyone's you know, heart disease, to cure anyone's blindness, uh, to cure anyone's COVID. How busy would you be if you had everybody going around publicly telling everything you've done? Oh, you wouldn't have a chance to do anything else. And is healing people the number one thing on Jesus's list? No. So, for example, when he heals the fellow that's lowered down through the roof, first he says, your sins are forgiven you. And when they say, who can do that? He says, so that you'll know that I have the authority to forgive sins, he says, rise and walk. So that wasn't his first purpose. But these two verses in Mark, and then we'll go to Stephen, are these. Mark 1, verse, uh, well, let's just read this whole section. If anybody's got that, Mark 1, 40 through 45. I got that one, uh, Mark 1, 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling said to him, if you will, you can make me clean. Moved, moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, 
and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly, sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing. Uh, what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places and people were coming to him from every quarter. And very similarly from Mark chapter three, verse 20. So the multitude comes together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. So that's one of the things is just basically kind of some crowd control and resource time is to what's more important. Was this yeah. early, this was early on in his um, uh, ministry too. And yeah. were, you, were you gonna bring that up as another option or is that tied together with that? Uh, well, that's when that happens. Uh, but and then of course he's going to become more and more famous, but he's he's trying to put some limitations on it. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that's some of the reasons. Stephen. Yeah, and, and just right in that same context, actually right before the story you just read in Mark one verses thirty-eight and thirty-nine, um, they're they're actually out looking for Jesus. He got up really early in the morning to pray, because that's the only time he could get some alone time, as he had to get up before it was light and go out in the middle of nowhere so nobody could find him. And finally, you know, he comes back and they're like, everybody's looking for you, of course, to be healed. And he says, let's go on to the next town. So that he says in Mark 138, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. So Jesus is very careful to not just stay somewhere and become the local doctor where everyone's just coming to him continually. He wants to get the word out the miracles confirm the message and that's his main purpose is to get the message out okay that's what i was gonna i wanted to clarify that you did that's why i'm, I'm going there to preach not necessarily to do miracles right the miracles are just to support the message the miracles right. aren't the main part right so that's one point is that uh, it slows the process of his teaching he can't enter a town uh, it'll say later as scott mentioned in mark chapter 3 that um you know they won't even be able to eat uh, mark 3 verse 20 it's uh, not even time to eat um, and this is right after a time when he told them not to tell anybody in mark 3 12 but i think another one comes up in mark chapter 8 where uh this isn't a miracle exactly but when peter confesses that jesus is the christ in Mark 8, in verse 29, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. But then in the very next couple of verses, uh, he tells them, hey, the son of man is going to be rejected. Uh, he's going to be killed. Three days later, he's going to rise. And then Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. And then Jesus rebukes Peter and says, get behind me, Satan. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I do think another component to Jesus is telling the disciples here not to tell anybody that he's the Christ is that they had the wrong concept of who the Christ was. He's not gonna suffer and die. Jesus, you got it all wrong. And Peter, you know, doesn't wanna embarrass Jesus. So he pulls him aside to <laughs> tell him this. Um, but I think that goes, that may be true for the miracles as well is people seeing Jesus do the miracles and them going, we found the Messiah, we found the Messiah. If they don't have the right concept of who the Messiah is gonna be in their heads, Jesus may not want that message spreading either. That's clear that he didn't have the right concept. 
of who yeah. the Messiah was at that point in time. Yeah, because it's right after this that Jesus says, listen, if you want to follow me, you've got to take up your cross and follow mm. me. Uh, this is uh, the concept of a crucified Christ was something that was not in their minds at that time, for sure. Another interesting passage uh, is in Matthew chapter 12. Um, and this is where a prophecy from Isaiah is specifically quoted in connection with Jesus uh, telling people to be silent. Matthew 12, verse 15, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I am chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. That's a quote from Isaiah 42 verses one through three. And I think the connection there is particularly in Matthew 12, 19, part of the quote where he says, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. I think there's something to be said about the humility of Jesus in not telling people, hey, go tell all your friends and your neighbors and tell them all to come out. You know, um, he's not running a Jesus for Caesar campaign. He's not, you know, trying to get his name, uh, you know, everywhere but he's not out there in the streets crying aloud. He's just quietly going about doing good and proclaiming the kingdom. So I think that's a, a helpful connection there in Matthew 12 as well. And that, I think that harmonizes well. We talked about it a few minutes before we started the program over in Matthew 17, they go up to the Mount and they see the transfiguration there in Jesus. This is an awesome scene. And in verse nine, it says, and as they were coming down, this is Matthew 17, verse nine, as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision. And then he clarifies why, until the son of man is raised from the dead. Yeah, I think that fits in with some of the humility there. The timing is definitely not right. He doesn't want this news going out yet. This was for them to see, wouldn't you say? Mm -hmm. This was there uh, for their information to see, later on being recorded then for us to read, but not for the public yet. Yeah. That's a good point. And there'll be a couple of times in John where it will say that after he rose from the dead, they remembered this thing that happened or this thing that Jesus said. And so yeah. some of the things Jesus isn't wanting everybody to know, but he wants the disciples to remember later on. All right. Anything further on there? Any comments or thoughts from our audience out there? Any, any other questions today? We appreciate it when we get questions from you. Does anybody have any questions on that or questions on anything related to that or another matter before we move to a different direction? Uh, Scott, we didn't get any coming in yet on the Zoom app. I don't, uh, Steve, are you able to monitor? Yeah, I'm, I'm watching the Facebook feed. I don't see any at the moment. We still okay. have a couple more points that we had talked about making on this uh, point. Uh, one is that in John, there's also this specific mention of the hour has not come or my hour has not come john 2 verse 4 john 7 verse 30 john 8 verse 20 um and then it's later on in john 12 when he says now the hour has come and jesus 
telling people to not spread the word, I think there is a, a, a an awareness that Jesus has of the opposition that's going to happen as he's doing more miracles and the following is getting greater. That will increase the envy and the jealousy of the Jewish leaders. And eventually they'll say after Lazarus's resurrection, okay, if we let him go on like this, the Romans are going to come and take away our place in our nation. And like, he's got to die now. And so Jesus may be monitoring the, <laughs> the pressure going on and not wanting that to accelerate too quickly. Uh, I've mentioned before that uh, when my parents spent some time in China back around 1991 or 90, uh, they would spend part of their time in Hong Kong and part of the time in the mainland. And in the mainland, uh, there were police, of course, uh, and Christians could be arrested and sent to re-education camps and different things. And so mom and dad would go in and they would spend a while there, but they didn't want to spend too long in one spot in a quick track too much and get things too hot. And so by going back out, let things cool down and then going back in. And that's helped me to kind of imagine as Jesus is going about. Uh, one of the contrasts is that when he's over on the other side of the Sea of Galilee and he casts the demons out of the fellow, the, you know, the demons were legion. Um, that fellow, Jesus says, go tell your family and friends, Jesus is leaving. That's not going to be uh, a problem there. Stephen. And to go right with that, uh, Joe just commented and said the woman at the well in John 4 was allowed to go and get those in the city. And again, Samaria was an area where Jesus wasn't doing a whole lot of personal work. He passes through a couple times. But uh, when he's a, you know, in a Gentile area or a Samaritan area, he's more free. He allows people to go and tell others and uh, even leaves them there. I mean, like you mentioned in Mark 5, the guy is told, go, tell, go home and tell your friends uh, what great things the Lord has done for you. Mm. I also think it's interesting that there's other times where Jesus doesn't tell the people not to tell anyone, but he tells the demons not to say anything, you know, because they're saying, oh, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And mm -hmm. And of course, that's just bad PR. I mean, it's understandable why Jesus would tell the demon to be quiet. He doesn't want, Paul will have something similar happen to him in the book of Acts, in Acts 16, with the, the girl with the spirit of divination. He tells her to be quiet, <laughs> uh, or the demon to be quiet, cast it out. And so that's understandable. Um, so it's just very interesting to see those, those contrasts there. The one other maybe simple illustration might be this. Let's suppose you are in Los Angeles or some other major, major huge city and you meet a homeless guy and he doesn't have any shoes and he hasn't had any food. And you go buy him a pair of shoes and you take him to lunch. Uh, <laughs> you might say, <laughs> don't, don't give my phone number to every single person you know <laughs> in all the shelters. I've never done that, but, but if somebody did, you can understand kind of why um, you're, you want to help this guy and you want to help some other people. But if, if uh, every single homeless person in, in the county now has your name and number, you're not going to be able to get as much of your work done. That's a good point. So whether it's one of these reasons or whether some of all of these reasons, right. There are several textual reasons, and some we can speculate a little bit about why Jesus wouldn't want people openly spreading the word. And of course, we see on multiple occasions, people don't respect that. 
and it does slow him down uh, to the point where he can't openly enter a town. They don't have time to eat. Um, but I mean, it is a tough thing that Jesus asks people to do after being healed, you know. Yeah. So this is a common question that comes up. And like Holly's question pointed out, there were some cases where he did it publicly in front of a bunch of people, like the ra raising of the widow's son. Uh, here's a broken-hearted woman. Her husband is dead. Her son is now dead, her only child. And they're about to go bury him. And right there and then, he does it in a wonderful thing for her. So it, it, there's plenty that's done publicly as well. Anything else? Any other comments coming in from the chat rooms? Nothing on Facebook. Nope, nothing right. on this side. All right, so we're going to switch now uh, to something we'd said a couple of weeks ago we might get to and, and talk some things about uh, evolution. And we're going to look at one little issue in one little field of evolution. So in the theory of evolution, um, one of the things that really gets people's attention is the idea of saying that humans evolved from apes. And there's a number of uh, fossils in there that uh, in different species that scientists have said, although they disagree on which are species and which not, and that changes over time. But some of the names that you might've heard of like Neanderthals, Homo erectus, um, uh, anything beginning with H-O-M-O, -O, member of our same genus, like Homo sapien, uh, Homo neanderthalensis, uh, some have put it in different species, some the same, uh, Homo erectus, Homo habilis is what we're going to talk about for a few minutes here. Homo habilis was famous partly because uh, they discovered tools that they thought that this being, this creature, uh, whether you think it's part man or part, or whether it's man or ape or something in between as evolutionists would have it, uh, the tool use was the thing that is significant about them. So I'm going to share a couple things here. We're going to take a look at these tools. We're going to find out something pretty interesting about it. When you're so, looking at that, Scott, uh, these are uh, Homo habilis, you're saying, is what they, they assigned that name? Yes. And they're saying there are some tools that they discovered that this Homo habilis has worked. And, and, and They're assuming, now we'll, we'll challenge that here in a minute, possibly, but they're assuming that Homo habilis used these tools. And what does habilis mean? Habilis has to do with the idea of that he's, a, that he's made these things. So Homo habilis is kind of like handyman. Uh, so here's an article from a lady from Smithsonian, uh, the first butchers. Uh, this is uh, Brienne Pobiner. She's a paleoanthropologist. And it says the best candidate based on current evidence for the earliest species in our genus, this is from 2016, and things change from time to time, but this particular thing is from 2016. And she says, at that time, the best candidate for the earliest species in our genus is Homo habilis, meaning handyman. <laughs> and why I called handyman? Because they say he made tools. Uh, and so they also did something novel as far as naming a species goes. They linked Homo habilis with the origin of a specific behavior by suggesting that this species was the maker of simple Oldowan stone tools found previously in the same sedimentary layer. These tools, which are basically simple stone knives, are made when roundish rocks called hammer stones are struck against more angular rocks called cores to strike off sharp 
flakes. Uh, now, since then, they think they've found some older tools yet, but we're going to focus on Homo habilis and his tools. So I'm going to stop share there, and I'm going to pull up this. And I'm going to let you analyze this and think about this, because there's several points here and one really, really important point that I think you're going to appreciate. Uh, let me pull this up and share screen. There we go, tools. So homo habilis and tools. Um, now, some animals do use tools. Uh, how do otters break shells open? With a rock. That's using a rock as a tool. Bonobos uh, and uh, some other chimpanzee, chimpanzees as well. Here's a bonobo using a stick to stick down into the termite mound. And then he pulls it out. And, you know, it's kind of like fishing with that stick, getting termites on it. So different animals will use tools. Um, but the first thing we might ask is just because you find a tool in the same sedimentary layer, layer doesn't mean that the fossil remains of an animal or something used that tool. Uh, for example, here's Australopithecus gary, uh, which is they would place uh, even more primitive than Homo habilis. They said there were some tools found, but there's no causal connection. The stone tools might have been made by Australopithecus gari, or they might not have been. For example, if you look in the dumpster behind McDonald's, are you going to find some plastic knives and forks? For sure. Are you going to find some pieces of Big Mac? Does that mean that cows use knives and forks? <laughs> That's case. a rhetorical question, obviously. So if you find tools with some bones, maybe the thing that was lived as those bones use those tools, maybe something used those tools on those bones. Or more recently, last weekend, you know, there were a lot of people that ate some turkey and they used a knife and a fork. If they were covered up by sediment and somebody's looking at it later, you haven't proved that turkeys use forks and knives. So that's one thing. But another thing is, let's move by, past this, um, moving past this. The question about homo habilis is, are you sure those are tools? The tools you just saw are I'm convinced tools. So I'm going to ask you guys. You mean the fork and a knife? That was tools. Yeah, and and there was a sharp point in there before before that I flashed by real quick. But what about these? Uh, let's first let's notice this about uh, Homo habilis. This is from a evolutionary book. In fact, I believe I've got it right here. Yeah. So this is the Neanderthal's necklace by Juan Luis Arzuaga. He's a professor of human paleontology. Uh, and he's an evolutionist. And he's saying from a morphological point of view, there isn't much reason to accept Homo habilis as a member of our genus. In fact, some scientists have suggested that he should really be Australopithecus habilis. That means Southern ape habilis. Um, what does it mean morphological view? That means the shape and the look in, in the proportions of the bones. For instance, they didn't have very big brains, most of them. They were quite, some of them very small brained. Um, none of them had really big brains. And their arms 
were much longer in ratio to their legs than humans are. Well, if you stop and think about it, a gorilla, his arms are a lot longer in proportion to his legs in a chimpanzee than Drew or Steven. So what this evolutionist is saying is from the shape and ratio of their bones, there's not much reason to put them in our genus. However, what does he say next? Because not, of the tools? It's not so clear that their intelligence was ape-like. So even if some of the bones are ape-like, he's saying, but maybe their intelligence wasn't ape-like because associated with Homo habilis are crudely chipped stone tools and sharp flakes that flew off the rock when it was struck. Okay, uh, chimpanzees don't go around making a lot of tools even though they might use a stick or something. Uh, and so that's kind of the big deal about Homo habilis, one of the big deals. However, you remember I asked the question, are you sure those are tools? They're not always sure they're tools because somebody read the next part in blue. Since it is not easy to say which of these were in fact tools and which were unusable byproducts, some authors prefer to use the broader term artifacts. Okay, so I suppose if you went to a machine making shop and you see somebody making, you know, hammers and screwdrivers and stuff like that, there might be some filings over here that are unusable byproducts. Pretty clear which is the tool and which is the byproduct, right? Yeah. All right, so now we get to the good parts. Are you sure those are tools? Oh, clear as a bell. <laughs> no. Not super clear. Not super clear to me. Yeah. So I want one of you. But then I'm not an evolutionary scientist either, Scott. I want one of you to play evolutionary scientist. Oh boy. And I want one of you to play skeptic. So the evolutionist, I want you because maybe those are tools. Maybe you know, look at there's a sharp edge and a sharp edge and a sharp edge and a sharp edge. Uh, this one, you know, I'm not quite as convinced by, or this one, if, if one of these is a tool, I'd probably lean more this way, but I want one of you to just for a second, you guys argue back and forth, just based on looking at those rocks, like debate class. Okay. If Which you're assigned debate, who wants to argue these are tools? Not me. Go I was going to say, neither of us want to argue that they're tools. I'll, I'll, I'll argue for the tools and you guys argue against it. All right. Look, they're clearly tools. You see the rounded edge here and see how this has been chipped off. And it's not just one spot that could have happened, you know, by natural process. It's not just one spot. You have another sharp surface here and another sharp surface here. You see that? Yeah, yeah, because rocks never have more than one sharp <laughs> spot on them that just you find out in the woods. And uh, rocks never break. No. Now watch this. Uh, this is a old one pebble tool chopper for sale for seven hundred and ninety-five dollars. You know, if you ah, like, antiques. what a deal. Yeah, yeah. If you like antiques, you know, uh, uh, you might. Some people collect old tools. I used to sell antiques, and there's a market for really really old tools well if they're right this is a really old tool this is from paleo direct but they have a warning on their site there because they want you to pay 800 bucks for that 
but look at the warning. Somebody read the warning for us. Uh, there are a host of these tools for sale on eBay and other websites providing less information and understanding of lower paleothic paleolithic specimens many of these sources offer nothing more than damaged ancient river cobbles caused by environmental action glacial disturbance frost damage etc or modern made fakes even broken cobblestones found is not a human created paleolithic tool so okay. they're admitting um some there's things happen naturally is that what it's saying the yeah, yeah, tool yeah. is flexible yeah, it's like, so you should buy our tool because ours is a tool. That's why you want to pay $800 for this. But, but the one on eBay, eBay, not so sure that's a tool. Yeah, that could have been, that could have been glacial disturbance, frost damage, just natural processes could have broke that rock by accident. But our rock is broken on purpose. Okay, then where's the instructions on how to use that tool? Well, they're thought to be butchering uh, tools, but they don't have an instruction manual. <laughs> they don't have a instruction I want, manual. I want to contrast that with this. Now, if you found that in the ground, would you have any doubt that that was a tool? No, it looks like an arrowhead to me. So this is a Homo erectus tool. Uh, Acheulean uh, tools are the type that they describe used with the fossils that they describe as Homo erectus, which I believe are human. These are Neanderthal-related tools, uh, according to those who find them. It's from, they call it the Mousterian industry. And, you know, those, those are tools. So if you remember Crocodile Dundee, where he says, that's not a knife. This is a knife. <laughs> <laughs> Quite an upgrade from these tools here, right, mm -hmm. to this. So here's my question. Are you sure those are tools? Maybe they are. And I'm, I'm even, make, maybe that one is. Are you sure they're tools? Are you sure they didn't happen by accident? How can you tell they were intentionally designed? You see where we're going I with I see where we're going oh, with Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Are you sure? This is evidence <laughs> of intelligent design. Well, wait a minute, Scott. Are you saying that an evolutionist scientist or, or archaeologist guy who's an, uh, an evolutionist type doesn't believe in God is saying that this is a tool? Yes. And the tool <laughs> had to be designed, right? Because it didn't happen by accident is what they're saying. Right. So, so we're seeing design in this rock. Yes, that you remember the the, uh, the earlier paleontologist, this guy, he said, from looking at the bones, you know, you might not see much reason to think that there's something that different than an ape. But it's upside down. If the tools, <laughs> the tools, we can see maybe something about their intelligence. Okay, so intelligence, intelligent. They're saying that these were intelligently, purposely made. Here's my point. Maybe, maybe that is. Did you, one of you be, a, I need one of you to play evolutionist for a minute. Who can do sure. it? Sure. All right. So, Stephen, did you see Homo habilis make that tool? Well, of course not. So you didn't see it. Based on what do you think he made that tool? Well, based on the, the shape and, 
you know, what, what we know of Homo habilis or whichever one we're talking about. And we, what do we know about Homo habilis? That he made tools. How do we know he made tools? Because they, he's called Homo habilis. <laughs> he's a handyman. Yeah, yeah. So these type of rocks have caused you to assume that he made tools and you didn't see him make them. But you're telling me that there's too much intentional design in that to have happened by accident by accident there's the clue so, um but this according to evolutionists is what that's an accidental eye that evolved over time without design without any intelligent design right just through natural processes of evolution and survival of the fittest and natural selection that that could just happen this rock right here, this rock right here, the shape of that rock couldn't just happen. This could just happen. Are you, are you, Scott, are you trying to say that our, our perception of things is subject to bias and that when we want to see design in something, <laughs> we might see it when it's not there or when we don't want to see design in something that we might be motivated to not see it? You know, people can be very motivated to see what they want to see. I heard about the, the mother one time who found the father had some beer in the fridge. The son was not to be in the father's beer. Uh, she found an open beer can. The father was not around. She confronted the son. The son said, oh, I was working on the car and I needed to drain some gas out of the battery and I didn't have anything else to drain it into. So I poured out the beer and used the beer can. And the mom believed him. <laughs> Why did she believe him? She wanted to. It's easy. Yeah, if, if, if you don't want to have a problem, if you can be given something to satisfy, okay, then yeah, so we can definitely have biases. So the- Oh, you do. We, we, you have a bias. You want to believe that eyeball and that heart was designed. Yes, I do. I admit my bias. Okay. Uh, but I also think it has a whole more design than that rock right there. Yeah, get rid of the bias. Just look at it for what it is. And I think I could agree with you that there's more design, thing, but the way it functions independently. So there's no intelligent design here. There's no intelligent design here. No, 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 no. But there's intelligent design in that rock. Did you happen to get? Uh, we talked about it, but that the Mali, the foul. Did you get any diagrams of that that you wanted to show? Or it was my no, that no, I, I didn't work on that. That was interesting, but I didn't let, let me explain a little bit about what that was. There is a bird in Australia. The male bird takes, um, uh, digs a deep hole, something four feet deep could be, in places. Um, debris in there, you know, rock, not rocks, uh, branches and, and grass and different things. And then he covers it up with sand, puts a hole in it and lets the egg, then takes the egg that the, the, the female lays and drops them in there. And basically what he's doing, he's keeping this as a compost heat. And if I recall, when you put it up on the site, it was like 33 degrees centigrade that he had to keep that nest exactly. And how does he do that? Well, he does it by sticking his tongue in an opening into the nest and his tongue is a, a thermometer that can 
uh, accurately tell the, the temperature within a tenth of a degree. If there's too much uh, sand on it, it's getting too hot, he'll kick off some, some sand. If it's not hot enough, he'll put more sand on there because he's got to keep it at the right temperature. That all happened by accident, didn't it, Scott? I think that bird was, I think that bird designed something and I think that bird was- Was designed, exactly. I'm trying to pull up here a page that had that bird you were telling about. Let me see if I've got Yeah, it. but on the other hand, that rock, yeah, that rock was, uh, was a good example of design. Yeah, and it's helpful just as we talk about these conversations to realize we do need to admit our biases at the front and to realize Absolutely. that we are all subject to interpreting the evidence in the way that we want it to go. Um, because there is some evidence that could go either way. And some of these rocks, like Scott said, well, maybe that is a tool, maybe it's not, but it's not super clear cut. But we all need to have the humility to recognize when the evidence does not point in our favor and to say, boy, that, that particular piece of evidence sure looks like this is uh, intentionally designed. Um, and just to say that there, in the creation evolution debate, I mean, there are difficult questions for both sides of this. And Here, so what that. we're looking at right now is an important principle in this though, is we all need to have the humility to say when so, it goes with our bias or not. So earlier, uh, Drew had mentioned this bird. I wasn't familiar with it. It's the Mallee fowl in Australia. And here's what he, here's what he does. So he makes a mound with a layer of sand up to a millim up to a meter thick. Wow. Uh, used for insulation. Um, and there's an egg chamber layer of rotting compost. The egg chamber is kept at a constant 33 degrees Celsius by opening and closing air vents in the insulation layer. One of the odd things is um, after the babies are born, they pay pretty much no attention to them. Uh, but look at all the trouble they go through and, and opening and closing vents to keep it at 33 degrees. Where did they learn to do that? Well, here, here's, here's, some, here's another question. Uh, and I ran across this question because I was working on this and I was looking for answers on it. And I found an atheist website where an atheist was begging for other people, atheists, to give him an explanation of nest building. Because how, how do they know how to build nests? Stop and think about this. A baby robin will be, a, a robin will build a nest in your backyard, right? Lay some eggs and then from the time of the egg hatches to when the robin leaves the nest, anybody want to guess how long that is? A week, maybe? Two weeks. Two weeks. And then it will fly away. Then later, months later, what will that bird do? Go build a nest. How did it know how to build a nest? Nest you school. Know, Stephen, when Josie was born, y'all might have put her in a baby bed crib. During the first two weeks of Josie's time and whatever, you know, things she might have been in, did she, do you think she was spending a lot of time during those two weeks looking at the construction? Okay, I'm going to need to build one of these later when I have, you know. 
the robin knows how to build a nest. How does that happen? And this atheist is searching for, for you know, answers on that. And one person gave something from Richard Dawkins, citing something from a university in Scotland uh, that said birds, it's not only instinct, they can improve over time, which the mountain, the, some of the birds that we talked about do. I mean, the more that, but that doesn't explain how they know how to do it in the first place. For example, when Josie gets her driver's license and you teach her how to drive, each year she drives, she will improve her skills some. But she didn't come into the world knowing how to drive and then gets better. How does that robin know how to make that nest? And then there's other ones that build pendulum nests where a few blades of grass come down and then there's a giant nest down here. All, all kinds of strange things. A lot of design, but where do the evolutionists see intelligent design? In a rock. <laughs> yeah. Which... <laughs> when it's even questionable by themselves. Oh, which I just find that really interesting that they're able to see that as intelligent design that wouldn't just happen by nature, wouldn't happen by accident, and yet design is all around them that they can't see. That's the challenge is to open our eyes and see the abundant evidence that the Lord has left for us and in creation. It's amazing to me when you read the Psalms, for instance, how many of the Psalms spend a lot of time praising God's creation. Or even when God comes to Job at the end of the book of Job and says, look at what I made. Where were you when I made this or made that? And he uses animals and he'll say, you know, do you know how this works? Do you know how that works? Look at the mountain goat. Look at, yep. look at the sea creatures I made. And, and the next, he, he appeals, he says, is it your command that the eagle eagle make it makes its nest on yeah that? and so there's a such a strong link between what god has made and learning about god himself that scripture yeah. itself goes back to that over and over again and that i think is the great danger of evolution is it really its purpose is to decouple god from his creation and say the creation was able to arise without god without intelligent design and it just doesn't hold up to scrutiny let me let me make, let me quote somebody who is not a scientist tell me who made this statement Stephen. for what can be known about god is plain to them because god has shown it to them for his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so they are without excuse. Yeah, that's Paul. Paul, Romans 1, 20 and 21. It, the, 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 um, the creation reveals that God exists. Doesn't tell us who he is, what he expects, but it tells us, the creation tells us he exists because of its design and all the evidence in it. We need the word of God that has been revealed through the Holy Spirit to tell us who he is and what he expects. And, and the plan of salvation, Jesus Christ, et cetera. You can't tell that from looking mm -hmm. at, at a bird's nest or a butterfly's wing or, or a bee honeycomb uh, or a heart or an eyeball, but you can see the power of God there. And also in Romans two, it does refer to Gentiles who by nature 
could do things of the law, mm-hmm. moral things. Not you can't by nature have known to observe the 14th of Nisan as the Passover coming out of Egypt or something. But uh, Confucius, hundreds of years before Christ, was able to say, don't do to other people what you wouldn't want them to do to you. And so, and so again, uh, in Romans 2, it also talks about people being without excuse. Now, but to find out about faith in Christ, as you said, uh, that has to come through the word, Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. You can see the creator in nature. You have to look to the word to find the anointed one, the Messiah. You know, Scott, it was a good topic. We just finished the course. You were, in fact, you came in one night as a guest speaker in our um, creation versus evolution course. There's so many things that, that we didn't cover in that course, but uh, there are other things maybe in the future we can look at some more examples of, of design um, in the universe and also look at how man discovers to design things by mimicking the creation. He discovers something in the creation. Wow, that's cool. And they make something out of that. Right, right. Well, uh, that's our time for today. Do y'all have anything else to add before we wrap up? All right. Well, thanks to everyone for tuning in to the Tuesday edition. I'll be back next week, Tuesday at two o'clock Eastern time, Lord willing. Thank y'all for tuning in. Thanks.